five-year-old and a two-year-old. So we're right in the middle of like the sweet spot of Christmas time at my house. Kids are pumped. They can't wait to get there. They're asking for everything they see everywhere all the time. And our response as good parents is, just put it on your Christmas list. Dad, I'm really, I'm thirsty. That's great, buddy. Why don't you put a drink on your Christmas list and we'll see. Maybe Santa will bring it. I don't know. Depends how good you are. Uh, That's kind of where we are in in the midst of this Christmas anticipation. Again, I don't know where you are, but for us, it starts really hot and heavy after Thanksgiving because we love Jesus. And so we don't do Christmas songs until after Thanksgiving. I don't know how you feel in your house, but we follow Scripture. And Scripture teaches us. It doesn't teach that. Um, We went to my parents for Thanksgiving up in North Georgia. And one of my favorite things when it's our year up there is to come back home. That's no offense to my parents, but I love the drive back home because uh, we listen to Christmas music. We've got Christmas movies playing in the car for the kids because um, they're, they're in this generation now that can't handle life without looking at something on the screen. And so they, we come home. It's just super exciting. It's Christmas music all the time. We get home and we decorate. Everything is super amazing as we're getting to Christmas at that point. So you've got that, right? And then you've got this second phase of Christmas anticipation where um, it kind of just settles in that Christmas is coming, but it's not here yet, at least for our kids. I think this is, this is the week. Uh, last week on Friday, I think it was or maybe Thursday, I'm getting our kids ready for school, and my five-year-old just wakes up, and I'm sitting on the bed with him, and he goes, let me guess. I'm like, what, buddy? He's like, it's not Christmas today. <laughs> like, man, we're, you're catching on. This is great. No, it's not Christmas today. You've got this many days left, and, and then we'll get there. And so they've settled into their presence under the tree. You cannot touch them lest you die. And so they don't. So they don't touch them. And, but what's coming, there, there's a day coming, there's a phase coming in our anticipation when our kids are out of school. And our kids love being out of school. I'm not a fan of my kids not being in school, especially those few days before Christmas, because then the anticipation gets heightened to like a violent anticipation. You know what I mean? Where we move from, hey, I don't know, put it on your Christmas list too. You're not getting any presents. I will burn all of these. I'm going to call Santa and tell him how bad you've been. No, you depraved little human. No, you may not have any of that. There's these three phases of anticipation as we look forward to something uh, that is, that, that's coming. How many of you like road trips? Anybody like road trips? Yeah, all the students, you don't pay for your gas. That's why you like road trips. I used to love road trips. Like, I used to love them. And in college, and so I played sports, and so we'd have road trips to go to away games. And then um, even in student ministry, we went. <laughs> That's not me on purpose. But if this builds something for you, just go with it. So road trips for us. Uh, you're welcome. Let's just pray, and we'll go home, and it'll be great. Uh, road trips, again, as a kid, I loved them in college. I loved them even more. They were so much fun for us. Um, and then I got married, and then we had kids. And road trips don't carry the same kind of mystique they once carried for me. Because now we stop every 20 minutes. Because someone has to go to the restroom. And I have two boys and a girl. So if it's the boys, we just pull over. But the girl, we've got to figure out where's the restroom. But like a clean one. And that causes all kinds of problems. And so it's just a different perspective when you're on different sides of it. When Meredith and I started dating, um, my parents lived about five hours away from us. And so we would drive to my parents' house to visit them for holidays or on a weekend or whatever. And we were so in love. I don't know if you remember this. We were so in love that we didn't need the radio. Remember those times? Because we just talked the whole time. Or she just stared at me like, man, I'm lucky. 
right? So we just, like, we didn't need anything. We just talked, and now we've been married going on 12 years, and it's like we can't turn the radio on fast enough, and <laughs> at least I can't. She falls asleep when we back out of the driveway. Like, oh, you used to love me. What? what? You love sleep now. Uh, right? So things like perspective of road trips changes a little bit, and in student ministry, as a student, I loved road trips. Like going to a conference or going to a camp or a retreat was amazing because you got in the church van. And there's this seat that's like a bench in the back of the church van. And you just hope that girl sat next to you because you were going to talk. And you're going to show her how many in sync songs you know. And it's going to be amazing. You know all the moves to bye, bye, bye. And she's going to fall in love. And then I became a student pastor and I despised road trips for that very reason. There's a boy's van and a girl's van. Never shall the two mix. Never. But it's interesting how journeys take on different perspective depending on the season and, and where you are. But road trips are a lot like that anticipation for Christmas. Everything starts off really exciting, and you stop by a quick trip, and you grab your Twizzlers and Dr. Pepper and slushies, and then 10 minutes later you have to go to the restroom, so you pull over. But you're pumped. You can't wait to get on the road. And then you hit this lull when you feel like you've been in the car forever and there's still much more forever to come on that road trip. You know those moments where it just feels like you're not getting anywhere, mostly because you've spent four and a half hours and you're just now to Atlanta? It's just like you're, you know where you're going, but you're in this lull where it's like, oh, this is incredibly boring and I don't know what to do anymore. And so you have two options. Either you just throw yourself out of the car and I don't, and like, Mission Impossible to roll down the hill and walk back home, or you just say, this is what it is now. My whole life is this. This is where I'll be the rest of my life, in this van or in this car. And then the last 20 minutes of a road trip take four and a half hours, don't they? Because it's like you get off the interstate and you're so close, but you're not close, but it just feels like you are. And so you've got the anticipation, the excitement, then you've got the lull, and you kind of just accept this is what it is. But then as you draw near, now it becomes more of a heightened anxiety and everyone is on edge at that point because you know how close it is. We're going to study scripture this morning. And I think for many of us, we enter this Christmas season called the season of Advent or anticipation or arrival. But many of us, I think, are probably in seasons of waiting. I think we're just waiting for something. And I don't know, I just feel the Lord this morning. Maybe, I don't know, if you're, what you're waiting on my hope is that we, I want to study scripture with you this morning, and I want to, I want to give you hope. But not like a fleeting um, Disney movie kind of hope, but a real rooted in scripture, in the character of God kind of hope. Because I think there in this room, there are some of us in each phase of that journey. Spiritually, maybe you're waiting for a spouse. Maybe you're praying and begging God for a child. Maybe it's um, a job. Maybe it's you don't want that job, maybe. I don't know what you're waiting for, but I just have to believe that we're all waiting for something. So I want to give us a definition of hope, and then we'll dive into Scripture. We're going to define hope in this way. Hope is a desire for the future based on evidence from the past. It's a desire for the future based on evidence from the past. And I want to distinguish it from, like, fantasy and a dream. Um, for my kids, they hope that they'll be getting gifts on Christmas because every other Christmas of their lives, they've gotten gifts from us, right? So they have evidence in the past that tells them in the future this is coming. But here's what is also true about my kids. 
none of my kids are asking for a Ferrari or a horse. Because I'm not going to give that to them. First of all, because I can't afford it. Secondly, I don't want to clean up after either one of them. So this is, there's a hope, but it's based in evidence from the past. What they know is mama and daddy have a budget. And we will spend inside of that budget. Okay? So you can dream for Prince Charming to come bring your glass slipper back. Or you can have a hope for a spouse, hope for a child that's rooted in reality from the evidence from the past. Are you with me there? So I want to approach this message this morning with this understanding of hope. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians is a letter written to the churches in Galatia by a guy named Paul. And listen, this letter is packed. These two verses we're going to study this morning are packed full of what could be a whole series of teaching. And I just, we just need to focus on part of it this morning. So don't send me emails. Well, you missed all this. I know I missed it. We don't have time. So we're going to cover this this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I could teach all day long, and I wanted to on the last part of this verse, born under the law. But I felt like God driving me back to the beginning. That when the set time had fully come. So when we think through Christmas, I think we are programmed to think Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the whole Roman world should be taxed. Does this sound familiar to you? Okay, that's where we think. But there is a set time that God had put on the calendar thousands of years earlier than that. I mean, before we were even thought of, before eternity was eternity, God set a plan in, in motion. And so Christmas begins all the way back in Genesis. And if you think waiting your 24, 25 days of December is rough, just wait till you have to start in Genesis and then walk all the way forward. But there is a set time, but the word here is when it has fully come. It's the idea of something about to overflow, when everything was set in place. So what Paul is saying is that God sent Jesus at the perfect time. And if you've followed Jesus for any amount of time, here's what you've learned. Your perfect time is not God's perfect time. It's just not. And the Christmas account is evidence of this fact to begin with. So let me just, let me catch us up real quick in the Old Testament to get us to the New Testament. And then I want to walk through a couple of New Testament passages and then give us some application here at the end. So the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God creating. God creates the world and everything is perfect. The, the Jewish, the Hebrew word is shalom. It's everything is as it should be. There's a perfect rhythm to the way the world works, perfect communion between uh, man and God, perfect communion between man and woman, perfect communion between man and the animals. Like he doesn't have to hunt. They just come for him and beg, will you please eat me? And yeah, sure. It's everything's different uh, there. And then Adam and Eve sin, and everything is broken. The rhythm of the world is broken. The communion with God is broken. Everything is broken. And so from there on, we have this journey of God restoring the world back to its shalom, back to its rightful place. So you start in Genesis. A few generations later, we get Noah. And at this point, the world is worse than it ever has been. And so God, Scripture reads that he actually he regretted that he had made humankind, and so he sends the flood to wash them off of the face of the earth. Noah builds an ark, and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Stuck in a boat with his kids and wife and animals, which is like a dream, I'd imagine. And then uh, they get stuck on top of Mount Ararat for a while, then he has to come out, and the world begins and starts over again. Generations later, we meet a man named Abraham. 
God would tell Abraham that I'm going to send the Messiah. I'm going, to, I'm going to fix this broken world through your family tree. And Abraham says, that sounds amazing. Here's the problem. I don't have a family seed, much less a family tree. I have no kids. I don't have any sons. I've got nothing. And I'm 75 years old. And God says, hey, it's fine. I will take care of this. 25 years later, God gives Abraham a son. 25 years later. A few generations from there, now we meet Joseph. He of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, uh, coat of many colors. Joseph is beaten by his brothers and left for dead. And then a long story, a long story short, Joseph ends up in power in Egypt. And there's a famine in the land of the Hebrews or the Israelites or Joseph's family. And they have to come to Egypt just to eat. And his brothers are before him and they don't recognize him. They finally recognize him. And Joseph gives one of the most powerful lines in all of scripture when he says, what you have meant for evil, God has meant for good. And there's a danger that Abraham's family line will perish should everyone, should all the Hebrews die. But instead, Joseph gives them food and in fact gives them a solace, a safe place in Egypt. Years and years later now, the Israelites are, um, are populating Egypt like little bunnies. And so they're populating Egypt and um, the Egyptian rulers and pharaohs are like, there's way too many of them, let's oppress them. And so he oppresses them and they're in captivity in Egypt. The people of God, the chosen people of God in captivity in Egypt, forget this, over 400 years. But God had promised that a deliverer was coming and then 400 years later they're in slavery. And while they're in slavery, a man named Moses, who is actually an Israelite who should have been killed based on an edict from Pharaoh, finds himself adopted into Pharaoh's family in power in Egypt at the, at the age of 40, kills an Egyptian slave master. He realizes people know and he runs out of town and finds himself in a, in a wilderness working for his father-in-law. And you thought the boat with your family and kids was bad. He's working for his father-in-law on the backside of a mountain for 40 years. At the age of 80, God sends Moses back, and Moses sets the people of God free from slavery in Egypt, only then to lead them to a dead end at the Red Sea, which God splits wide open. Forty years in the wilderness because of their own sin before they conquer and get what God promised them in the promised land. They wander for 40 years. I don't know if you're catching on any themes here, but God doesn't move quickly. God is patient and deliberate and intentional in what he does. They wander in the wilderness, they get the promised land, and like they do and like we do, every, every victory they have, they take credit for. Every failure they have, they blame God for. And God continually tries to remind them, you haven't done it, I've done it, you haven't done it, I've done it. So then it's a period of kings, and then God sends prophets, and prophets are declaring the word of God to his people. And the message of every prophet, every time throughout history is two things, remember and repent. Remember that I am the Lord your God who set you free from slavery in Egypt and turn from your evil, wicked ways and follow the Lord. It's the message of the prophets. It's a message of hope with a message of conviction along with it. We finish the Old Testament with a prophet named Malachi. And the last paragraph of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, Malachi gives a prophecy that, hey, things are bad here. Things are, are not what they should be. The Jews still believe in God and they're doing fine. But he says there's coming a day when God will send a Messiah. He will send a rescuer. And he foreshadows and tells about Jesus coming the first time as a baby, but also coming again the second time, which he will make everything right in the world again. So he gives this 
promise to his people, and then God falls silent. Forget this, 400 years. God is faithful and painfully consistent in the way he works. God doesn't step out of character. This is who he is. He's the family walking in the mall or outside at Tanger that takes up the whole sidewalk and won't let anyone get past. You know that family? That's us. But right, he's, he's so methodical and slow in the way he works, and he does not break character. 25 years, Abraham waits. 40, year, 40 days and 40 nights, Moses or Noah is in the ark. 40 years, Moses is in his own wilderness. 40 years in which the people of God are in a wilderness. 400 plus years in which his people are in slavery. 400 years, God is silent. God gives a promise and then falls silent. Ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you received hope from the Lord and then he was nowhere to be found for an extended amount of time? You ever have a moment when you feel like he's coming through and what he promised to me and then there's nothing? It's just crickets? Maybe it's been different for you. Maybe you had a job interview and things went really well and it seemed like they really liked you and then you just couldn't get in touch with them for another six, seven weeks or months. Maybe it's a relationship that started off really good, but then it just kind of went silent. The people of God are waiting for a Messiah. God gives them a promise, and then there's nothing. No prophets for 400 years. No hope, no remember and repent, none of that. So for us, we turn from Malachi to Matthew, and there might be a blank page in the middle, but there's this gigantic 400-plus years of history that happens. But for us, we often mistake God's silence for his stillness. But in God's silence, he is never still. He is always working. In this 400 years, many things are happening so that God could get the set time fully ready for the Messiah. The pieces are in place and he's moving them around. Let me just give you an, kind of a big picture overview of what's going on here. Culturally, for the first time in history, in the Mediterranean area, there is one language that dominates, and it's the language of Koine Greek, or common Greek, that permeates the area. So even the Jews who spoke Hebrew are now learning Greek. And the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew was translated by 70 translators called the Septuagint. So now the Old Testament is Greek. So not only are the Hebrews hearing the words of God, but now the Gentiles, the Greeks are as well. There's also no war in the area for centuries because of what's called the Pax Romana, instituted by Caesar Augustus. So the whole Mediterranean world is under one government. That phrase, all roads lead to Rome, was literally true in this area. You could get any, from anywhere to Rome at any time. So commerce is improving, trade is improving, but communication is also improving. What used to take months might now only take weeks to travel. So that's culturally. Religiously, in these 400 years, what we call 400 years of silence, Jews now are migrating everywhere. They're moving from Israel, moving from Judea, from the Promised Land, and they've scattered themselves everywhere. And they're mostly devout Jews, at least devout to the tradition of the Jewish faith. So they're setting up synagogues everywhere. And people are starting to know who God is. Everyone else is falling out of love with the Greek and Roman gods of mythology because they've offered all the sacrifices, but the rain hasn't come. 
they've done all the right things, but there's been no harvest. And so they're starting to believe maybe this isn't what we thought it was. And so they're searching for something. You've got Pharisees who have risen to power. And so in the New Testament, we'll meet the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees are uh, men who had risen to religious but also cultural power. And they they had taken the law, the Old Testament law, and added laws to it. And they were very legalistic. That legalism, the way that you lived is how you earned favor with God. And so they've risen to power, but now even the Jews are getting tired of the Pharisees. Because what they're realizing is we can never do all the things they want us to do. We might as well just give up. So then the New Testament starts with God moving pieces in place. The New Testament starts. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 1. So we go from Malachi to Matthew, a blank page, but 400 plus years of God's silence. And it should sound eerily familiar to when they were in slavery in Egypt. And so I don't know how you guys do Christmas morning at your house. For us, um, our kids wake up, we put them back to bed. They wake up, we put them back to bed. They wake up, we put them back to bed say a few words that I can't say from a stage to our kids. And then we, uh, then finally we're like, okay, let's just all get up and we'll go downstairs. And so we go downstairs and then they see the presence. But then we say, let's read Luke chapter two together. Which is pretty much like telling my kids, I'm gonna take both of your legs. You're, you're no longer be able to walk. What? At Thanksgiving this, this past year, we were at my family's house. Um, and sometimes on Thanksgiving, I'm the oldest of six, and so then most of us have children, so there's like 15 grandchildren, and so we're all gathered around this long table, a ton of food everywhere, and sometimes my mom would say, hey, before we eat, let's just go around the table and tell what we're thankful for. Mom, this isn't the time for that. (laughs) So we flip from Malachi to Matthew, and Matthew is the New Testament, right? It's the story of Jesus. But Matthew, a Jewish tax collector, is like, whoa, hey, before we eat, let me just tell you 42 generations of Jesus' family first. Let me just do that. Anybody just read right through Matthew 1? Let's just skip it and move on to the miracles and the wine and stuff in John. Skip there instead. So here's this genealogy, but here's what Matthew is saying to us. Remember. Remember. So here's how he starts the New Testament. The Messiah is coming, and he says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, son of Abraham. Packed with significance, I don't have time, so we're going to hit a few highlights. Here in verse 1, we we'll find out that he, David is the son of Abraham. You know Abraham. We just talked about him. Abraham, 75 years old, promised a, a family, 100 years old, is given the family. But in the meantime, gave up, like had the lull between the promise and the fulfillment, and he and his wife gave up, and he slept with the maidservant. Then we find in, in verse 2 that Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was this miracle child born to a barren woman. If you're taking notes, that's in Genesis 21. Also in verse 2, we find out Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob and Esau. Jacob stole Esau's birthright and then ran away. This is Numbers 24, if you're taking notes. And then he marries a woman named Rachel. Also married her sister. Whole other story. But we're going to come back to Rachel in a second. Verse 2 Also here in verse 2, Jacob, the father of Judah. Judah is the son of Leah. Leah is Rachel's sister. It gets Jerry Springer, so we're not going to go into that. But uh, this is in Genesis chapter 49. Then skip down to verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who is the wife of Uriah? Good class. Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba is married to Uriah. David is king. David does not have a wife, but he wants that wife, but that's not his wife. It's somebody else's wife. And so he, um, they have dinner and, and talk together. And then she ends up pregnant and gives birth to a child. And this child's name is David. So David is a son conceived in adultery. This is in Jeremiah 23. Then in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1, we meet Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the father of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. But here's what we know about Joseph. Joseph was a poor carpenter from a town called Nazareth. So back then, they viewed Nazareth the same way we view Tuscaloosa, Alabama. (laughs) And the phrase then was, nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. Nothing good ever comes out of Tuscaloosa. Right? That's, this is how they believed about Nazareth. So there's this moment in which God is going to send, finally going to send the Messiah. After thousands of years, 400 years of silence, made a promise. He's quiet. And he says, oh, and by the way, roll tide. Like that's, how he's, that's what he's saying. But he's coming from a, from a carpenter's family in Nazareth. That's in Matthew 2. But then there's this problem because the prophet Micah in the Old Testament in Micah chapter 5 said that the Messiah would be born in a little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not near Nazareth. So now God's got to get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But the timing's got to be dead on because she can't go there and then come back and have the baby in Nazareth. Like it's got to happen in Bethlehem. So how, what's he going to do? Well, in those 400 years of silence... God had used, believe it or not, had used politics to accomplish his will. And so God raises to power a man named Caesar Augustus. So if you would turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 begins in those days. In what days? Well, in the days, the 400 years, after the 400 years of silence, in these days where everything seems seems to be falling apart, where the people of God have given up hope that God really is gonna come through. In those days, Caesar Augustus, and Caesar was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, not his blood son, his adopted son. And Julius Caesar anoints Caesar Augustus, he'd be called later Caesar Augustus, to power. And Caesar Augustus was a man who believed in governmental oversight. He believed in big government. This is totally different from years past in Rome. And what Caesar Augustus wants to do is to have a census to bring everyone from the towns they live back to the town of their ancestry. And what we know is that Joseph is from the line of David, and David is from the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem would be called the city of David. So Caesar Augustus issues a decree, and what do you know? He has to come back to Bethlehem. What's really weird is he's coming back at a time when his fiancée is pregnant with a child. What's even weirder is that he somehow convinced his nine-month-old wife that they should go back to his family's house. Then we get into verse 4 of Luke chapter 2. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And here's what's interesting about Bethlehem. You remember I told you about Jacob and Rachel. Well, they they get married and they they flee, they run away. And Rachel finds herself in a town of Bethlehem and she gives birth to a son, but she dies in childbirth. And so they bury her in an area of Bethlehem called the Migdal Eder, M-I-G-D-O-L-E-D-E-R. 
This is the place where in the old law, in the custom of the tabernacle and the temple and sacrificial system, it's where shepherds um, would breed and raise perfect spotless lambs to be sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. So it's crazy because God brings Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem. And it's like God had Mary give birth to the Lamb of God who would be a spotless lamb, who would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. So there's a way in which God works that he's moving pieces around, but there's such detail and precision in the way in which he's, he's doing it. Then verse 4, he was of the house and lineage of David. Go down to verse 6 of Luke chapter 2. While they were there, the time came for a baby to be born. Well, what do you know? Somehow God worked it out that Mary would actually give birth here in a little town of Bethlehem. But it's not the story we would write. You know, because she's not in her hometown, doesn't have her mom nearby. She's out of town, has been traveling, and they can't find anywhere like safe and sanitary to have the baby. And so they, they find this innkeeper who just happens to have a room in the back, like in a stable. And so this is where the Son of God would be born. Like a sheep. And so this is the plan of God. Convenient, no, comfortable, no, unclean, yep. But when Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, when the set time had fully come, this is the time. And it's not our idea of a set time. It's not, it, the timeline wasn't right, the place wasn't right, but God says, I know what I'm doing, this is right. Why? Magdal Eater. Why? Micah chapter 5. Why? Because now, when the birth happens and the angels tell the shepherds because they're in Bethlehem where shepherds gather and the shepherds go and tell everyone because now the Pax Romana, now all roads lead to Rome. Now the whole Mediterranean world knows the Messiah has been born. 400 years earlier, who knows about it? I don't know, 400 people. This is the simple truth for us this morning that God is working while we are waiting. Listen, I don't, I don't know what you're waiting on. And maybe you're in the lull and it feels like God's not doing anything and you're begging and he's not doing anything and you're crying out to the Lord, give me a sign, give me something. Here's what I would say to you. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. God's working. It may not feel like it. It doesn't, um, you're not hearing it. Nothing's being declared to you, but the truth of Scripture and the character of God is he is painfully consistent with what he does. And he's working. And the thing you're asking for pales in comparison to the thing he's going to give you. And that's not like prosperity gospel. That's truth from Scripture. And I wonder if we, like the Jews, are just missing it. If we're just missing what God's doing because we're looking for it somewhere else. But like a bad infomercial, just wait, there's more. So then we find the wise men, and the wise men, the magi from the east, follow a star. What I love about science is when it catches up to ancient texts, like when it catches up to Scripture. In the last 10 years, astrologers have been able to figure out a system in which they could tell you where, where certain stars were in the sky at any moment in history. And what they've learned in the past 10 to 12 years is that sometime between 7 B.C. and 1 B.C., 
there was a cosmic event in which Jupiter and Venus almost circled each other, creating what looked like a gigantic star. And in the midst of that, from where you would, from the east, from where you would see it, it looked like it was actually connected to what's called Regulus, which is what's called the king star, the brightest star in the constellation Leo, which is a lion, the king and lion of Judah. Jupiter, um, which mythology would tell us is, is a king, and Venus, the goddess of fertility, joined with the lion and a king. And what astrologers would tell us is that from, from the east, it would appear as though that star was moving but that it would, it would have stopped somewhere over the town of Bethlehem between 7 and 1 B.C. And that's not scripture, but that's what we're starting to realize. And back in Genesis chapter 1, where God created the heavens and the earth, and then he would tell Abraham, hey, listen, your descendants will be more than the stars in the sky. I know each one of these stars. You can't tell me God didn't already have that set in motion. And the wise men would travel to meet this Jesus based on a star. So I would tell you, I think God moved heaven and earth to get Jesus to us. And what makes us think he wouldn't do the same thing to get us to him? What I'm saying is it's not a coincidence that you're here this morning. Because somehow, literally and figuratively, the stars have aligned. And this is the place you find yourself on this morning, on December 9th, 2018. You find yourself in a town of Ola in McDonough, Georgia. At a church to hear a guest speaker talk about this. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I just have to believe that in the midst of our waiting, God is up to something. It's not a coincidence. Back in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he would come under the old Jewish law. He would be responsible to execute the law like any other Jew would have been. But he's the only one who would have done it perfectly. Verse 5 of Galatians 4, To redeem those under the law, and that's you and me, we are under the penalty of the law. If we aren't perfect, we should die. But God sent Jesus at a set time when it fully came that we might receive adoption to sonship. And maybe that's what you need this morning. Like maybe, maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. The thing you're waiting for is only going to be found in Jesus. And whatever you're searching for in relationships and in your job and money and prestige and girls and, or guys or whatever it is that you're searching for, it will only be found in Jesus. And God moved heaven and earth to get Jesus to come here. And I believe he's moved heaven and earth to get you here to meet Jesus, the Savior of the world, who has numbered your steps. God is working while we are waiting. So let me just give us some application here. I think there's probably three groups of people in the room this morning. I think there are some of us this morning who have just begun a new journey. We just started a new road trip and we're excited about it. 
Maybe we got some fresh life in our, in our bones. Maybe last week you gave your life to Jesus while here on Sunday. Maybe, maybe that's you and you're here and you're pumped about what's happening and you can't believe God would rescue you and, and, and you can't wait until God makes you wealthy and healthy and you, just, you can't wait for all those great things. I'm gonna tell you with all the love in my heart, it's probably gonna take longer than you think it is. Whatever you're waiting on, you just got engaged, you just got a boyfriend, you just got a new job, I wanna root your hope in truth. Because when your hope is placed in unrealistic expectations, you will end up disappointed and bitter. But here's the truth of scripture that God is painfully consistent. The thing you've been waiting on, the journey that you're on is gonna take longer than you think it will. And thank the Lord. Because he's gonna do a work in you in the midst of the process. And there's some of us this morning who are right smack dab in the middle of a journey. And it feels like you just can't get over the hump. And you've resigned yourself to, this is just what my life is. This is just what it is. I'll never be married. Maybe I'll never have kids. Maybe I'll never get my degree. Maybe I'll never get that job. Maybe I'll never, whatever. And so now you've relegated your life to a hopeless existence. And you're fine. But it's like God hasn't answered and and you're wondering where things are. I'd love to infuse some hope to you this morning. God is working even when we don't see it. And when you can't see the hand of God, you can trust the heart of God. And he's working. And I would say to you, remember. Remember that he is the Lord your God who set you free from slavery. It's also the Lord your God who took 400 years to do it. He answered the cries of the Jews for a Messiah, but he did it differently. So I would ask you as well, what are you looking for? Maybe there's some of us this morning who we are just at the end of the journey and we are violently anxious about what is to come. Because you feel like it's so close, but you just can't seem to get a grip and you're losing sleep and you can't keep your heart from racing. And I would tell you, remember and rest. You can't move stars, but God can. You don't want a Messiah born in Nazareth. You want a Messiah born in Bethlehem. So whatever it is that you're anxiously expecting, would you just breathe and realize you're not in control? Praise the Lord that the sovereign king of the universe who created the heavens and the earth and has set all things in motion and moves them by his mighty right hand is doing the same for you. And whatever you're expecting, what God has promised is better. It's not going to feel like it all the time, but it's just better. My family, growing up, we loved puzzles. I think because there were six of us, my mom needed something to keep us occupied. And I don't know how you make puzzles, but I make them the right way, which is you put the edge around first. Anybody? That's how you make a puzzle. If you don't, let's not make puzzles together. (laughs) That's how you do it, right? You got to frame in the puzzle. And puzzles will come in a box. And on the box is a picture of what the finished puzzle looks like, right? Have you seen that? And maybe you're like me and I get the frame in place and I start playing with the pieces and put them together. But I compulsively get the pieces and check back the box. Check the pieces, look at the box. Do you do that? Because I look at the box, I'm like, oh, I got it memorized. And I start working on the pieces and I get distracted by the pieces and I forget what the puzzle actually looks like. So I've got to keep checking the box, got to remember the box. I think following Jesus is the same way. Just keep looking at the picture. Keep checking the picture. We're distracted by the pieces. Keep, keep looking at the picture. 
And in this season, there's no better picture than the birth of Jesus Christ. To see all the things that God had to put in place for the set time to fully come, there's nothing better than Christmas. Because the present is a piece of a plan that God put together in the past. And you can trust it. You can trust his plan. He's put it together. It's finished. What you're walking in now, this moment, is part of a plan that God had already put together in the past, which is why for us that hope is a desire of the, for the future based on evidence from the past. If you need hope this morning, know that when the set time had fully come, God sent forth his son. And there's a set time that may not be fully come for you yet. But God is working while we're waiting. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of scripture. Thank you for being a God who's big enough to exist outside of time and space. A God who sets things in motion and is intimately intertwined in making the pieces fit. And that you're a God who uses everything from religion and faith to um, our own insecurities to politics to get everything working for us. So God, I pray that you would even just remind us of that this morning. That you are who you say you are. And you'll do what you've said you will do. That as a God who cannot break a promise, you've made promises to us that you would never leave us or forsake us. That though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, you will be with us. So for those of us in the room this morning who are losing hope or who have misplaced hope, would you draw us back to truth? In the magical, amazing, perfect story of Christmas. In Jesus' name. We're going to sing a song as, as a means of response this morning. I think sometimes there are things that we believe but we just can't express it and music the gift of music and art allows us to express things differently than we can just with black and white words on a page and worship is interesting in, in these ways one I think sometimes we worship out of an overflow of our heart it's things that we believe and so we, we sing them because we believe them but what I've found to be true in my life more often than not is I have a hard time believing they're true so I need to sing them to make my heart fall in line like sometimes the posture of our hands follows the posture of our heart, but there are also times in which our hands dictate the posture of our heart. So as we sing this morning, that God's promises never fail, that, that he's faithful and true. Maybe some of you believe that and God's been, he's proved that to you over and over. Would you just sing out of that, like an, an overflow of, of your heart? But for those of you this morning who are questioning the goodness of God and you just, you can't see it, Sing it and see if your heart doesn't fall in line with it. Would you stand as we worship together?